Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Peter Ross, and this is my wife, Emily. Uh, Phil just asked us to uh, read our favorite scripture, or one that we like a lot, um, and uh, give a little comment on it and a prayer. So um, I'm going to read from uh, sorry Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So Jesus quotes this um, in Luke 4, um, verses 18 and 19. Um, when he leaves the desert from being tempted by Satan, he comes back to where he was raised, Nazareth, and he begins his ministry, and he quotes this scripture in reference to himself fulfilling that. Peter and I have been married for 21 years, and shortly um, after we moved here, about 17 years ago, the Lord gave us this scripture one night, um, we believe that it's a mission for our lives. It's an invitation for us to partner with the Father in proclaiming that Jesus Christ um, is the good news that everyone longs for. Through the course of our lives and into our marriage, we have been able to identify with being poor and brokenhearted, prisoners in darkness, mournful and in despair. And God has used this passage to encourage us that we have have been on the right path when we've doubted that or when we've been confused, um, corrected us when we thought that maybe he was far from us, reminded us that even when we've fallen, when we've been lost or hurt and poor, that he is still a God who is for us. And through all of the loss in life that we've endured, he has shown us that he still loves us and he cares for us through it all with his goodness and his faithfulness. Likewise, he has revealed to himself, himself to us as the good news. He has bound up our brokenness with a salve that only his spirit can. He has proclaimed freedom over areas of our life that have been in shackles. He has pronounced that we have his good favor even when others have turned their backs on us. He has provided us with a comfort, a joy, and a praise that this world hasn't ever been able to offer us in the midst of our storms of life. God has something beautiful, light, and relieving, a respite of exchange with us when we cast all of our anxieties and our sorrows at his feet. And it has been through weakness and pain and troubles that God has declared us as oaks of righteousness. And he says that he plants us in himself as a display of his majesty and splendor. Imagine that. This Christmas and always, we have a hope in the good news that we are not left, forgotten, or forsaken. Father God and Jesus himself proclaims that he is the good news, and we who know this to be true because he has met us here in these messy, ugly, difficult, hard trenches of life, Christ has anointed us and empowered us by his spirit to go and to proclaim this truth to others. 
It's because of the difficult challenges that we've faced in our life that we feel called and that we feel we can sit and try to comfort others with the comfort and the truth that has been imparted to us. That we feel drawn to vulnerable characters that are mentioned in this passage. That we can share the hope that we have in God through Jesus. How beautiful it is that God says that we who are weak and downtrodden, we are the ones that get to display his splendor. It's certainly a paradox in our minds that we have difficulty embracing, but it's what Father says his kingdom is built on, such as these. Us and you, we who acknowledge that we are in need of a sovereign, loving Savior who can come and save us from ourselves and from sin and from the very pits of hell. It doesn't matter what we go through in this life, because for us who call on his name, he offers us robes of righteousness for our worn and our tattered pauper's threads. Because of his faithfulness, he makes with us an everlasting, precious covenant, and he stamps us his blessed. So if you'd uh, bow and pray with me, uh, I'm just going to read a prayer. I normally don't do this, but uh, it's a prayer from the 13th century, and I think it really applies. It's by Henry uh, Suzo. Lord, we plainly see that you are the only and the true source of wisdom, since you alone can restore faith and hope to a doubting and despairing soul. In your son Jesus, you have shown us that even the most terrible suffering can be beautiful if it is in obedience to your will. And so the knowledge of your Son has enabled us to find joy in our own suffering. Lord, our dear Father, we kneel before you this day and praise you fervently for our present sufferings and give thanks for the measureless sufferings of the past. We now realize that all these sufferings are part of your paternal love in which you chastise and purify us. And through that discipline, we now look at you without shame and terror because we know that you are preparing us for your eternal kingdom. Amen. Well, we have been working through uh, Mary's response to the news that we've just watched in that little video called Mary's Magnificat, or Mary's Song. And if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to open to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be working our way again through selected passages in this particular portion of Scripture from verse 46 to 55. Last week, we talked about kind of a posture that God has towards his people, and we unpacked that at length to say, beginning from the very first time that God speaks to Abraham, you see this posture of, I desire to bless you. I desire to do significant things through you. And we see that theme woven throughout the, the response of Mary as God continues to be in the very act and business of blessing Mary and others, that we would know him and walk with him in some significant ways. And today, woven again into Mary's song, there's another observation that I want to draw your attention to, and it is really the key to the most profound question that a human being can and will ever ask their own life and the life of others, and it's right there, kind of in this song of Mary. So before we get started, would you pause with me for a word of prayer? Our gracious and heavenly Father, this morning we again come to a very familiar song 
a very familiar passage of Scripture that we read over every Christmas season. And if we're not careful, it just becomes words to us because we've read it so many times or it's been read to us so many times. The moment when you send your son into the world, born in Bethlehem. And God, this morning as we engage again um, Mary's words as she processes the news that she's going to be the mother of the one who is the most high, the one who will redeem, the one who will restore. God, may we find ourselves in the text. May we um, hear from your spirit in our own unique and personal way this morning. May we be um, drawn closer and closer to you as we engage and study your words by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. What can I do, what can you do to ensure that we have or that I have a full life? This is on the mind of every 19 and 20 year old as they are beginning to process leave home. We, we're watching our son kind of process like, what am I going to do when I move out? What kind of occupation am I going to have? He does some Google searches about hourly wages and different occupations and he's trying to figure out like, what is going to be the best scenario for me as I kind of leave home and spread my wings and figure out life outside of the home of my parents. It's on the mind of everyone who is approaching kind of that 55 and the freedom that retirement offers, and some of you are there and you're laughing already. Um, others, uh, it's a question that you, that you struggle through as we move closer and closer to death. This is a question that has been on the minds of human beings all over the earth, History past and present and will forever be a question that we have out in the future. What can I do to ensure that I have and experience a full life while I'm living here on the earth? One of the best moments that comes out of the scriptures that helps us unpack this particular question is found in Mark chapter 10. And again, we're going to kind of spend some time in Mark 10, but it's all in the shadow of Luke chapter 1. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27, there's a story that's recorded there of a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he approaches him with a question. And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to stop here for a moment because a lot of us grew up in a narrative where that question was really asked through the lens of what must I do to ensure that when I die, I'm fine? And that's not at all, that's part of it, but that's not the heart of this particular question that the rich young ruler is asking Jesus in this moment. The reason why we know that is that he is a rich young ruler, and he is not concerned about what happens at his death when he's old. He's trying to sort something out right now in his life. He's trying to figure out this deep dis-ease that he has about where he is in this space that he finds himself. It's a question about life, a full life, a life where one would find themselves lacking nothing. And what I find so interesting about the question that is asked isn't really the question at all, but really it's centered on the person who is in fact asking it. It's a question about life and where one can find it from a person who is young and rich and in a place of authority. Now, if I were to say to my son or my daughters, when you're 20, you're young and you're rich and you're going to be in a place of significant authority, they're like, done. Like, that's the goal. Like, that's the whole point of everything. 
And they'll quickly discover, as this rich young ruler does, that not everything is satisfied when you actually get what you're chasing after. This is really the goal of anyone who is 19, 20, and they leave home, is that they become a rich young ruler in one way or another. This is the person who is moving into retirement, is that they're not young anymore, but they might have still the vitality of someone who's young with all kinds of power and abilities to do and go wherever they want to do and go through their wealth. And yet this particular gentleman, given all that he has, he is keenly aware that something is off in his life. Something is nagging at him on the inside because something's not quite right. And this thing that's off inside of him compels him to seek Jesus out and ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The response is shocking, and if we're not careful, it can be used in all kinds of harmful ways. But Jesus responds to him and says, sell everything that you have, and then give it away to the poor. Which, if we're honest, it confuses the rich young ruler, because I suspect that's not what he was anticipating. And it confuses me, the reader. I'm like, really? Like, if I sell everything that I have and then give it to the poor, is that going to satisfy this deep longing of what is required to experience a full life? How does this solve the question and give me eternal life? In Mary's song, through the shadow of this, it helps us understand and unpack what's really going on behind this particular scene with the rich young ruler. If we take a good hard look at the Magnificat or the song, you will begin to see what is required to experience a full life, an eternal life that this rich young ruler is looking for. And you can find it really in Luke chapter 1, verse 50. It's on the screen, and I would encourage you to highlight this in your Bibles or your phone. And it's a little verse that says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him. And I want to highlight this little phrase, fear Him. Fear of God is not, I'm scared of Him. And I want you to picture this in your mind, because there's lots of children who grow up in a home where they are actually scared of their dad. That if they make a noise, they are going to be in a lot of trouble. It's this child who's quietly walking through the house and they are nervous that if they knock something over, if they make a noise, if they cause a disruption, their dad is going to actually get really, really angry at them and they are scared of bringing out this reaction from their father. This is fear. This is being scared of something. And this is not at all what fear of the Lord means. Fear of God is, or fear of the Lord is, this child, this same child, knowing that they are in fact in a jam or in a space that they can't solve, that they need some help. And they ask dad for some help. And that father says something, and that child does exactly what their father has just explained to them. Here's another example to help you get a grasp of the whole fear of the Lord. Let's pretend that you're lost in the woods. First, you're fine, but you walk for hours and you convince yourself that you're fine. And all you're doing is just kind of walking in circles over and over. And you can see the trail that you've been on because you're doing all the things by, you know, snapping branches. So that if someone's looking for you, they'll find your track and, and you just, you're just going round, around, around. And the sun is getting 
lower and lower in the sky and it begins to set and all of a sudden it's dark and you now know that you are lost. You are absolutely lost in the middle of the woods. That's strange to you. And the, wood cha- the woods change at nighttime. The shadows become eerily creepy. Squirrels sound like bears. Like it's just weird what happens in the woods at nighttime. And you know that you are in fact lost. And to make matters worse, you begin to hear the very distinct sound of something creeping just beyond your eyesight in the woods. At this moment, fear has just gripped you. You are terrified of what's unfolding before you. It's dark, you're lost in the woods, and you hear a bear. And it's not a squirrel bear, it's a bear bear. Like it's a real bear in the woods, and your heart is pounding. And all of a sudden, you see this flicker of a flashlight kind of making its way through the woods, calling your name. And they get closer, and they get closer, and all of a sudden, you see the person that's looking for you. And it's a ranger in the park who has come looking for you. And instantly, he says to you, you are in grave danger, and you're like, I'm aware of that. (laughs) He says, you're in danger. Let's go. You need to follow me. And you don't question him. You don't get out your map and try to explain what you thought and how you got here. You just do exactly what he invites you to do in this moment in your life. That posture of I'm going to do exactly what you say is at the heart of what fear of the Lord means. In Luke 1.50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. It is a person who understands who and where they are. And it's that same person who understands who and where they are responding to another person or another voice because of the relationship that that person has with you when you understand where you are in this world. The fear of the Lord is a heart of a person when they understand a situation that they are in. Their heart is evidenced in how they respond to that other person because of who they are in the relationship that they have with you. In the example that I just gave to you, you're the person lost in the woods. You gave it your all. You gave it your best and you are still lost. And a ranger shows up. And because of who they are in relationship to who and where you are, you just stop talking and you start doing very quickly. You just listen and you follow them out. Even if what they're asking of you to do makes no sense. If I'm lost in the woods and I'm aware that there's a bear close by, that ranger could ask me to do whatever he wants me to do. I'm like, I'll do exactly what you say because I believe that you know what you're talking about. And if that means I gotta lay down in mud and hide myself, if that means I gotta wade through water, if that means I gotta climb a tree, if I have to do whatever that makes no sense, I will do it because I'm putting my life in your hands that I will be led out by you and your knowledge and your wisdom and who you are. Those who fear him are those who understand who and where they are in relationship to who he is. And this person, the scriptures would say, this person is a wise person. Throughout the Proverbs, there is a phrase that sounds this, it says this, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You are an an incredibly wise person if you have this fear of the Lord. 
The flip side of that is you are an incredibly thick person if you do not fear the Lord at all. If you're lost in the woods and a ranger shows up, you're like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, okay, we'll see how that unfolds in your life. In the next 30 minutes, we'll see if you're lunch or not. When God, the park ranger, shows up in my life, I want to have a posture where I'll stop talking. Where I will listen close. And I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Because I have no idea how to get out of the woods. And it's curious when you get into the pages of Scripture... You see the fear of the Lord on display in multiple moments where you see a person who understands who and where they are and God shows up to them in one way or another and you see a response that reflects the heart of what we're talking about in a beautiful way. There's a guy named Abram at the very beginning of the text. I want you to leave everything that you know. I want to leave your mom and your dad. I want you to leave the idol-making business that you're a part of. I want you to move to a land they haven't seen and they know nothing about. All right. And he just goes. A little later on in his life, after he has taken that first step of faith, God comes to him, and now the son that he has been promised is living. He's like, now I want you to take your son, and I want you to march three days into the woods, and I want you to build an altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham is like, all right. And he marches off with fire and wood to go kill his son with no questions asked. If you know the story, that doesn't happen, but it's that front-end response. Noah, Noah, I want you to go build a giant boat because there's rain coming. Are you sure? Because I don't feel it in my bones, but if you say so, I'll go build a boat. Joshua, I would love to be a part of the inner workings of this meeting that Joshua would have had with his generals. I want you to take your army, and I don't want you to fight them. I want you to march around the city with trumpets and sing songs. Are you sure? Because that sounds like we're going to lose. <laughs> Just do this, and they do it. One day at a time, and on the seventh day, seven times, and the walls fall down. Naaman, a story that you might not know. He is covered in leprosy. And God tells him, Naaman, I want you to go find that lake over there and I want you to get in it seven times and you'll be healed. I, I would love for a family doctor to be like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go in the Hillsborough River seven times. And just trust me that when you get out on that seventh time, that you'll be, and Naaman does. He just goes into the river and he's healed after that seventh time. You come into the New Testament and there's ten lepers this time who they're not allowed to worship the Lord, they're not allowed to be around people, they're not allowed, they're like cut off, they're excommunicated from everything. And Jesus simply says, I want you to make your way to the high priest and I want you to present yourself to them. Now, if you're one of the 10 lepers, you're like, this is against everything in your bones, everything that you've been told and taught. And they just make their way to the high priest and while they are making their way, they are healed. And perhaps my favorite story is the story of the Roman centurion. His son is dying. And if you're a Roman centurion, you have access to the very best that your world offers. And nothing from his world has fixed or healed his son. And out of desperation, he goes to Jesus Christ and 
he explains the situation, and Jesus basically says, I want you to go back home, and when you get there, your son is going to be fine. And the Roman soldier does exactly what he is told, and he makes his way back, and by the time he gets home, his son is healed. Again, in Mary's song, this magnificent, it speaks to the common ingredient that's, ingredient that's found in this particular person who fears the Lord. And it is someone who possesses this quality of being humble. In Luke 1.52, he has lifted up the humble. The ones who are filled with the fear of the Lord, there's a posture of humility in them. And it's significant to understand this little dynamic. To the person who's lost in the woods, they are humble. They are humbled in this moment. Abraham and name, Noah, Joshua, the lepers, the Roman centurion. They're all humble or have been humbled by their circumstances in life. And they need some help. They can't figure out the problem that they're working through on their own. They can't solve this particular dilemma. They're missing something. And their life just feels broken in one way or another. It lacks a good biblical word, this term called shalom, this peace on all fronts of our life. And after they have this encounter with the living God, or after he goes and speaks to them, their posture is perfect. They're filled with a space of humility. And they do what God asks them to do. And God, in fact, lifts them up from the space that they're in. I want you to look at the opposite side of this coin. The opposite of the humble posture. This person is never going to fear the Lord. The opposite of humble. This person is never, ever, ever going to come to a space where they fear the Lord. And this is in verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. I want to explain this little line just very, very quickly this morning. Using the rich young ruler that we've already highlighted. This is a person who has everything. He's rich, he's young, and he's in power. And something is missing in his life. And he knows it. And it bothers him to the point where he goes and asks Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him exactly what he needs to do to experience what he's asking for. He's like, no, I'm not buying it. And the Lord scatters him in the moment. He's like, all right, I told you exactly what you need to do. And you're not going to listen because you're filled with pride. And I'll scatter you to the wind. It's curious. In the work that I do, there are a host of people who will come and ask me about the life that they're in, the space that they're in. And it's very similar to the rich young ruler. They have a lot or they have very little. Um, They're tormented in one way or another. They're struggling through a series of decisions that they've made and now they're kind of living out the reality of those decisions. And they'll, they'll ask, like, what, what would you do if, if you were me? And I try as best I can to point them back into places where Jesus has given clear direction about whatever it is that they're working through, and I'll, and I'll tell them that. And they'll sit back in the chair often, and they'll kind of process that. And, and in a very rich, young, ruler, rulerish way, they're like, no, I can't do that. And it saddens me when I watch them be scattered because they refuse to actually humble themselves 
And it's just pride that drives them down the tracks to more and more and more frustration. If we compare and contrast the rich young ruler to Mary, it's curious. God comes to Mary through the form of an angel and tells her about what's to unfold. And her response is just one of humility, where she graciously hears and responds, and out comes this great song of praise to the news that she's just been given about her life and the rest of her life. God then lifts her up, and we're still talking about her to this day. When the rich young ruler approaches Jesus, which is different, because the other one, God comes to Mary, but this he seeks him out. He's like, something's wrong. What must I do? Because I'm following all the rules, and I have all the stuff you'd ever want, but something's not right. What must I do? Jesus tells him exactly what he needs to do, and he scoffs, and he walks away. And I want to highlight this for you this morning, and this cuts across the grain of our culture right now. Jesus lets him walk away. He lets him go. He doesn't run after him. He doesn't beg for him to reconsider. No, no, I was just kidding. That's not what I meant. Just half your stuff. He doesn't run after him. He doesn't change the requirements of the entry point. No question Jesus is saddened by this. This is someone that he has made. This is someone that he's going to die for. This is someone that he's uniquely treasured and valued from the living God himself. But he doesn't change what's required for this rich young ruler to enter and participate in what eternal life means in his life at that moment and for the rest of his life. It says something to us, it should say something to us, that Jesus, no doubt saddened, watches him walk away. And he doesn't run after him trying to convince him, he just lets him go. Okay, if you're never going to listen to my voice now, you're never going to listen to my voice later. So I'll let you go. And pray that maybe one day there'll be another moment where you will hear my voice and you will respond with humility and I'll lift you up in this moment. But for now, I'm going to scatter you to the wind and let you keep searching for things that I've already told you the answer and it saddens him to watch it all unfold. If you want life, it is linked to a trust and faith in Jesus Christ following his way of life, plain and simple. To the humble person, when Jesus comes and speaks to us, we, like Mary, sing great songs of praise that God answered our prayer, and he has shown us a way through the woods that we are lost in. To the proud, he simply scatters them. Last week, we spent our entire time discussing that God enjoys to give and bless others with good gifts. Our getting in on God's blessing in a unique and wonderful way is tightly woven around the conversation that we're having this morning. You and I, we might not be the rich young ruler in the text. We might not have a face-to-face dialogue with Jesus himself. We might not be like Mary where an angel comes to us and speaks to us in the night and tells us amazing things are going to happen in our life. We might not be like the other characters of Naaman and the Roman centurion and other ones that we've highlighted this morning. We don't have that kind of interaction. But we do have God saying in all four Gospels about his son, this is my son. 
listen to him. This is my son, listen to him. And that moment of God declaring this over his son, it is no different than how God comes and speaks to Abraham. It is no different the way God comes and speaks to Joseph or when he tells the lepers to go and present themselves to the priests. It is no different from the Roman centurion who's told, just go back home and by the time you get there, your son's going to be healed. That same space where God says, this is my son, listen to him. What is required to listen to him is the same thing that's required in all those stories, that space of humility. Okay, I will. Because I understand that I'm a rich young ruler and I don't have a clue how to solve the inner struggle of my life. I'll come at this conversation through a space of being very quiet, knowing I'm lost in the woods. I've given my best shot. It's dark. There's a giant animal that's close by and my life is perilously close to ending. And a ranger shows up. I will humble myself and I will listen close to everything that you're saying and I will walk in faith in that particular way. This Christmas season, this is my prayer for you, for me, is that we would actually be a people who cultivate humility. You're like, well, how do you do that? Well, in the clearest and simplest way that I can say it, you have to do some work to discover what Jesus says about life, about your life. And then you need to do it, even if it makes no sense to you. The only way you will ever cultivate humility in your life is if you will just trust and do what Jesus is asking you to do. And you're like, well, that sounds like a battle of wills. Yes, it's exactly what it is. You have your ideas that got you lost in the woods. You tried at your very best to solve it, and you're lost. And a ranger shows up. Every single one in this room and listening online, if that person lost in the woods says to the ranger, I'm fine, I don't need your help, we would be like, you're a moron. You are absolutely outside of your mind to refuse the help that you've been begging for quietly for four hours in the dark. When Jesus comes to us, whether it's through the text of Scripture or it's the Spirit Himself impressing upon us to do something, the only way we will ever develop a spirit of humility is to actually surrender, to deny myself, take up His cross, and follow Him. It's never going to happen if there's not this daily space of denying myself of what I think is right, and what I think is good, and what I think I should do. If I'm not daily denying myself these things, I'm always going to operate from a space of pride that I know best and find myself in situations that I never thought possible that I'd get myself into. Or worse, I have no idea how to get out of it now. And so pride will just keep me in this cul-de-sac of crazy over and over and over and over again. Like this rich young ruler who walks away thinking, well, that can't be it. I'll go ask the next wisest sage. And all he is doing is looking for someone to affirm his already preconceived ideas of how to get out of this mess. When the living God comes to us and says, I want you to go to that river and I want you to dip yourself seven times. That might be the most bizarre word of instruction you ever receive. Can you imagine that Naaman's mom? What are you doing? Well, the Lord told me to go into the river and bathe seven times. <laughs> like, I know how that conversation would unfold in my house. I'd be like, what? 
but, but there's that space of like, if the living God has spoken a word of instruction in my life, I want to come to a space out of humility where I will listen and practice and do what he's asking me. This is my prayer for you, for me, is that through this particular season, we would cultivate a space of humility, which is that space of denying myself, and I will follow him. And that begins early, early in one's life, where I want to come to that space where I recognize you for you, who you are, in that simplest and smallest way. Because some of the things that come later are complex, and they are difficult, and they are challenging, and it will feel and sound completely opposite to the things that you want to do or that you think are needed to do to solve and restore whatever spot that you're in. I love the little line, and I'm going to invite Dana and team back, is that God lifts up the humble. I can't imagine being in a space where God has asked me to do something, and out of a space of humility, trust, and I've moved in that direction, and the Lord lifts that person up. It's been curious over my life, again, in this particular role, I've got to watch that unfold in some of your lives. God has asked you to do something that's made no sense to your friends and family. You're bathing in a river seven times and everyone's like, what are you doing? And you are set on, well, this is what the Lord has told me to do. I'm led into conviction. This is what I should be doing. And you, you haven't been able to figure out the why yet. And all of a sudden, months later, years later, there's that space of God has lifted you up from that space. And then there's others here, online, God has come to us and said some things. You're like, I don't know. That makes no sense. And he scatters us to the wind. Does it make him sad? Yes, it does. Because he has uniquely made us. Loves us. Died for us. Longs for us to experience redemption in every way. But he's not going to change the rules for me, for you. He lifts up the humble. He scatters the proud. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, may we be a people that cultivate this humility in our lives. That we would daily practice this, I will deny myself, I will take up your cross, and I will follow you. That we would pay attention to that same heart that the rich young ruler has of just, I have all that this world has ever promised and something is still missing, I still lack life. May we just be a person that will hear your voice, swallow our pride, and through humility, find the river that you're asking us to bathe in seven times. That we would just return home believing that our son's going to be healed when we get there. That as I make my way to the priest, the leprosy is going to be gone. The ones who fear him, they are the humble and you lift them up. May we be a people that function daily from the space of fear of the Lord and be on the receiving end of new mercies every morning. In your name we pray.